Hello everyone, welcome back to the Triple D Podcast. I am your host, Mike Weir. I would like to take a second to apologize to my entire audience. I think I have three listeners. I took a break over the last year, as I'm sure you're aware. For whatever reason, I let life, everything get in the way and made excuses for why it was okay. And I apologize for that. So I hope you can forgive me, and here we go. Let's dive right into the next episode. The next episode of this podcast, the Triple D Podcast, or Dads of Daughters with Disorders, I've simply titled Medication. Um, I wanted to take a, a, a step back. I know the first episode was kind of all about the diagnosis, and our second episode was really about her first, Emmeline's first life what it was like dealing with all those hospital visits. And I mentioned several times her medication that she was on. And so I wanted to take an in-depth dive into that. When Emmeline was first born, um, when she was first diagnosed with arginosuccinic aciduria lyase, she was put on a couple of different medications, and then her diet was, was changed as well. And I think next episode I'll get into the diet, so bear with me on that. But the first uh, medication Emlyn was placed on was something called sodium phenylbutyrate, or bufenol for short. It's a scavenger drug that literally goes through your body, and it looks for ammonia. And it attaches itself to ammonia and changes it to resemble urea, so that your body can then process it in your liver and flush it out of your system. The side effects of sodium phenylbutyrate are quite uh, intense, to say the least. I don't know um, how many have tried to give a one-week-old baby medications from a syringe. If you haven't, a one-week-old baby or even an an infant, consider yourself lucky and, and count your many blessings because it is extremely difficult. Now, that's extremely difficult even when the medication is supposedly, you know, quote-unquote good-tasting medication like the the ibuprofen that has bubblegum flavored or whatever it is that you're feeding your child. Bufanol was not one of those good-tasting medications. It was so damn bitter. You may think I'm crazy, but I have actually tasted all of Emmeline's medication simply because if I am going to force my daughter to take these medications, yes, to save her life, but if I'm going to force her to take these medications, I wanted to know what it tastes like so that I could understand um, the difficulty that she faces taking these medications. That was a a side note. Sorry, bear with me. It's been a while since I've sat behind a microphone, and I may get off on a few tangents today, and I apologize for that. Anyways, back to sodium phenylbutyrate or bufanol. For those of you who don't remember from high school chemistry, sodium is essentially salt. The main ingredient, or at least really the only one with any discernible taste in bufanol, is salt. So... After I tasted it, like, I, I don't know, I, I get what I call canker sores, those sores inside your mouth. One of the best ways to get rid of them is to gargle some salt water. So I always end up putting a couple of tablespoons and some of salt and some water and gargling it. And I was under the impression that sodium phenylbutyrate would probably taste more like that. I was extremely unprepared for how bitter and salty bufanol was. 
I felt like I was force feeding Emmelin salt water, but not just a little bit that you gargle, like I mentioned, but truly like a cup of salt to a quarter cup of water. It, 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 that's the only way I can describe how that tasted. It was just disgusting, just horrid. And I put some in my mouth and instantly had to spit it out. And here I am forcing my five-day-old baby to take this medication and swallow it. Like I said, this is so much worse than you could possibly imagine unless you're weird like me and you taste your children's medication and they happen to be taking buphenol. Let's get into the side effects. The side effects of sodium phenylbutyrate included a burning of her taste buds, burning the esophagus, thinning of the stomach lining, and we noticed that she was in a, a fog. At the time, we actually didn't notice, um, and I'll talk about how we came to understand what that truly was like uh, a little bit later in the episode, but that was one of the very real, very serious side effects is we, you hear adults talk all the time, oh, I have brain, I feel like I'm in a fog, I can't think, I can't concentrate. Hey, imagine that for a two-week-old baby, and then knowing that that mirrors some very similar symptoms of what you may or may not have to worry about in regards to the hyperaminemic episode. So we're dealing with that right off the bat, so yay! Talk about a sodium overload. Um, Emmy was a champ, though. After the first few doses, began to take it mostly without a fight. Again, I say mostly because all infants struggle with taking any kind of medication and as you can imagine something so bitter and salty of course she's going to struggle but she was she really was a champ she just she learned to just accept it I don't know that she liked the taste I'm sure she didn't she probably didn't even really tolerate the taste I saw it as more of a just an acceptance she accepted that we were forcing this disgusting liquid down her throat every four hours and so she began to handle that with without very much of a struggle at even just a, a, a couple weeks old. Looking back now, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back now, this is something that truly angered me more than I think I, I could admit to myself, more than I definitely ever admitted to Jessica or anyone else, um, more than I've been able to bring myself to admit until, quite honestly, this point. To know that there was one life-saving drug for my daughter out there. And the side effects were horrendous. It was absolutely disgusting. I wouldn't want to take it. I struggled to think that even if I knew it would save my life, if I had the choice, I don't know that I would have wanted to take it. And yet here I am, forcing my just-a-couple-week-old baby to swallow this bitter, salty, nasty concoction Every four, five, six hours, I don't remember exactly how many hours, Jessica would correct me if she was sitting by me. And it, it tore me up. <sighs> Sorry, I didn't think I was going to be emotional for this episode. It's just supposed to be about her medication. And like I said, at the time, I, I, I didn't realize that I was so emotionally invested in this medication. And, and in a very negative way. Um, looking back now, I think this is what really started to bring out the anger in me. I had kind of come to accept, okay, look, she's got this disorder. We'll get through this. We're in the hospital for this first week. We'll get through this. They're figuring out her medication. As soon as we get home and I taste this medication and I realize that I have to force 
this innocent, beautiful little girl to take this medication every few hours for the rest of her life? Something inside of me broke. And because I'm a man and we aren't allowed to have emotions or show emotions or talk about emotions or be emotional, I had to hide it and be strong, be a man. Because a real man, that's what you do. And it led to all kinds of other problems in my life that we will, I will have to circle back to on another episode. And I apologize for that tangent. The second medication that Emily was on, was, it, and she currently is still on this one, is an L-arginine supplement. It was an arginine supplement. And the L-arginine was, uh, the way we originally were given it was basic, not basically. It was a IV medication that they were pouring into a bottle for us to suck out with a syringe and shove down our throat. <sighs> so not only is she taking a disgusting, salty, worse than seawater, worse than you can imagine, now we're giving her an IV fluid down her throat. Yeah, that sounds real great. But I digress. Emmeline is on L-arginine still and will be her whole life simply because that is where the urea cycle is broken for her. Our livers are where the urea cycle happens. There are several different genes in there that make the process function for all of us without a urea cycle disorder. And one of, when one of those genes is broken, deformed, the other one usually can make up for it. But when your parents give you both a broken or malfunctioning gene, that you have a urea cycle disorder. And emelins happen to be an arginine on the arginine strand or the arginine strand of her DNA. I can't remember it all. I'm not a biochemist geneticist. Um, I apologize for that. but And I apologize that I regress back to episode one to talk a little bit about that. <laughs> um, the, the As I said, the dosage she was on was uh, an R, it was R L arginine, but it was... An IV fluid, and and that is simply because she was on such a low dose to begin with that we couldn't mix a small enough amount of powder with water to get her the right dose for her to take once and then twice a day. So she took the same dose. We measured out, I can't even remember, I want to say it was one, one and a half milliliters, but this or maybe it was no this was much smaller i'm thinking 0.2 or 0.4 milliliters of this arginine twice a day and i remember when i went down to the pharmacy at the hospital when we were leaving we had to fill that prescription there at primary children's and the pharmacist technician i, I don't know what they're called she came over to hand me emelin's medication and it was in a big glass bottle and she looked at me and was like well is this right and i said i don't know you're the pharmacist <laughs> and she had to consult with the pharmacist and he came and had to double check with the doctors and we ended up sitting and waiting for 30 or 40, 45 minutes because they didn't think that they were sending us home with the right medication. And so that caused another stress-inducing panic episode almost on my part because I'm over here freaking out. They're not going to give us our damn medication. We're not going to be able to leave the damn hospital. We just got her off of her IVs. We need this stupid medication so that I can take my child home who I haven't been able to take home and let her sleep in her bed for five days. And you're telling me that the doctor prescribed the wrong thing who's probably smarter than everyone in this damn hospital. And we, I just began to spiral out of control. Luckily, everything was resolved. They then had to figure out a way to open this glass bottle 
without breaking it and get the fluid out without spilling it all over the floor. Like I said, normally this type of thing, they would hang on an IV tree and then poke a needle in through the bottom and run the hose, the tube out of it and give you your life-saving medication. And we're supposed to be bringing this stuff home in a plastic bottle. <laughs> I, I don't know if you can imagine that taste, but meds meant to go in an IV are just disgusting they do not taste good i don't recommend tasting one of those for those of you that are like oh yeah hey that podcast guy he told me to try my kids medicine if it's iv flavor if it's an iv medication you're giving them orally just know it's going to taste disgusting you'll probably be okay you don't need to taste it anyways right off the bat we're leaving the hospital emlyn's by this point just over a week old we're now giving two medications that are truly just disgusting nasty horrendous things none of us in our right minds would ever want to consume on a regular basis or even more than just slightly have a drop in our on our tongues and we are now required to give her her medications every six hours for the sodium phenylbutyrate or bufenol and twice a day for the l-arginine See, I I corrected myself. I did know what I probably did was ask Jessica when I was writing my notes for this episode. And then I got carried away and got ahead of the subject. So every six hours for bufenol, twice a day for arginine. So we did morning and night and tried to do it with her her bufenol medication times. This literally meant waking Emily up in the middle of the night at least once to administer a medication every night. Now, for those of you who have had a child or have had... And more specifically, if had more than one, you'll know that when you have a young child and you now have a baby, the last thing you want to do is force this child to wake up every six hours, regardless of how much sleep they've had, or that you've had, or that your child has had, to give them medication. And yet that's exactly what we did. We did this every day, day in, day out. Like clockwork, Jessica was amazing because, of course, I, I was struggling. I was losing my job. I was suffering with depression. I was spiraling out of control. And so now my wife is trying to take care of our newborn, get up with her and breastfeed her and give her her medications at exactly the right times because we were terrified if we were a minute late. Or at least I was, I guess. I've never actually asked Jessica her her concerns and worries for those first few weeks about her medication. But I was terrified. I mean, wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, almost screaming my mind out. Because I was terrified we had slept through and hadn't given Emmeline her medication at exactly six hours. And because of that, my daughter was dead. And that she was never going to wake up again. That did not happen. We were okay. I have since then tried to learn how to control <laughs> my emotions a little bit better. I'm still not good at it. You can ask Jessica anytime. We did the bufenol and L-arginine faithfully every six hours, six and 12 hours for the first seven months of her life. At this point, I say at this point because uh, this is when I remember learning about it. I feel like Jessica had probably told me about it a couple of months before when she had learned about it. But this, the seven months is the critical age, the critical point in Emily's life where a big life changing, potentially for the benefit, for the good, potentially for the bad decision came into our lives. And we were approached by Horizon Pharmaceuticals. They are a, obviously a pharmacy company and they were put into contact 
we were put into contact with them through Emelin's genetics team. Horizon had developed a new medication for treating urea cycle disorders called Revicti, or glycerol phenylbutyrate. You'll recognize, some of you may recognize that phenylbutyrate is the same for both of those medications. The difference between this one, one is sodium phenylbutyrate, one is glycerol phenylbutyrate, glycerol, glycerin, is an oil-based product. And so this is an oil-based medication. Instead, it's a, a nitrogen. I have that it's, I apologize, it's not oil-based. I have on my notes that it is, if I would just read my damn notes. Instead of being a sodium-based medication like bufanol, Revicti is a nitrogen-based binding agent. And so it is not technically a scavenger drug. It doesn't go and find ammonia and then scavenge it and change it and force it out of your system it is a binding agent and it's designed to it still finds the ammonia but instead of scavenging it from your system it, it binds it to itself and lets your body do its natural process and get rid of it i'm not 100 percent on the science of either of those these are just what i've the research i did and what i remember it had just been approved by the fda for testing children under two years old and they thought uh farm Horizon Pharmaceuticals thought that Emmy was an ideal candidate and were hoping to get her in the study. Uh, I can't remember if we were at Primary Children's for a monthly checkup, if we were at the hospital for one of those myriad of hospital stays in the first year of Emily's life, or, or at one of, or what it was, but at some point, we, I remember vividly meeting with Horizon and they wanted to discuss this study and they brought in all kinds of material they were extremely nice and and understanding and they were they were caring and i of course i'm getting emotional again because this, this changed our lives it changed our lives but i remember meeting with them to discuss the study and my initial reactions at the time on the study was was hope was first first and foremost i I thought hope. I thought, holy hell, there is a second medication out there that can treat urea cycle disorders that doesn't taste like half a cup of salt mixed with an eighth of a cup of water? This is incredible. Why are we why have we waited so long to hear this? What why am I hearing this now? Why did we have to do this other stuff first? The second emotion I had was fear. And it came slamming in real quick and just shut all that hope down. Fear that this wasn't gonna work, that the study wasn't going to be approved. She wouldn't get approved to be part of the study. Fear that we'd put her on it and suddenly her ammonia would spike. We'd have huge hyperammonemic episodes, way worse than anything we'd seen. She would be in the hospital constantly. And then the doubt came in shortly right after the fear. The doubt that what if this doesn't work and we commit to it and I kill my child? But what if I don't do this and I'm ruining her stomach and esophagus and her taste buds more than necessary because she has this opportunity and then confusion came into play as well confusion that why why now we've just gotten the hang of this whole thing we've been dealing with this bullshit for six months seven months five months whatever it was at this point so why now are we being approached why wasn't why weren't we approached when she was a week old before we left the damn hospital in the first place why did we have to wait <sighs> Anyways, sorry, I'm just reading through all my notes that I wrote and making sure I didn't miss anything. But the next thing that I did, the, the big part about the doubt and the fear that I didn't quite get to is what if it doesn't work? My hopes. 
My hopes are dashed to pieces. I knew my depression at that point would get worse. I had already contemplated suicide multiple times by this point. So my fear of taking on this study and it not working was probably really for selfish reasons. Um, because I was worried if it didn't work and we had to get her back on bufenil. Or if it didn't work and she died, or her ammonia got so high that she was now mentally retarded and in a vegetative state or a coma, that I would spiral so deep I would take my own life. And then, like I said, that confusion just kept coming back. We have a proven medication. It's, it's keeping her alive. Do we really need something else? Why are they approaching us? Why is she such a good candidate? Why is God providing this option? Is it really the right thing? Is now the right time to do this? Or do we wait until she's two? Why didn't we do it sooner? Like I said. Well, after much talk and consideration, I think we both thought about it almost 24-7 and spoke about it a lot, Jessica and I. We decided to take that terrifying step into the dark and signed her up and started the trial medications. I prayed every day that that it wouldn't be a mistake. Excuse me. That it wouldn't be a mistake. That I hadn't just condemned my child to a life worse than what she already had. And that the medication would work. Every morning I woke up in a panic thinking I had killed my daughter. I had killed my daughter in her sleep with this new medication. And I had to run into her room and make sure she was still alive or pull her from her crib or go look in her bassinet wherever she was at at this point and go make sure that she was still alive i thought i killed her i was so sure i had made the wrong choice and two weeks into the study our lives once again changed forever within two weeks Emmy began sitting up on her own, crawling in, on into this knee walk. I've, I've never seen anything like it. It was the cutest damn thing. Uh, she began pulling herself up to a standing position uh, against anything and everything and babbling like a, new, a normal seven-month-old child was. A spark entered her eyes for the first time in her life, and it was like she woke up or came alive for the first time ever, it was like that brain fog, that side effect of sodium phenobutyrate had finally been erased from her, had been removed. And she, it was like she could see and think and function for the first time. And I couldn't believe it. After that, she began progressing rapidly. Um, so rapidly, it was as though she was trying to catch up to where she should have been mentally and physically. And it was incredible. It was such a healing thing. Uh, this tremendous... This tremendous weight was lifted, sorry everyone, was lifted off my shoulders that I didn't even know I was carrying. Like I said, looking back I can see the effect this change to the study had on me, but at the time I, I didn't realize it. It was an incredible, undeniable blessing. Not only had my fears been in vain, but I saw miracles daily. I saw miracles daily as she snapped out of this fog 
like state that she had been in for months. And for the first time since Hemi had been born, I felt hope. It was as though dawn had finally broke. And darkness was beginning to be pushed back. Things began to shift and my perspective began to change. Maybe, just maybe, we will survive this. Maybe Emmy really will be okay. Maybe I'm not a worthless pile of shit after all. And maybe I actually did the right thing by going along with Jessica and doing this Revicti study that kept me up at all hours of the night and tormented me relentlessly for two weeks. Anyways, everyone, I would like to just apologize for how emotional I got. Um, Not because, as a man, I still think that you shouldn't be emotional, but simply because I know it makes it hard to understand and to hear and know that I have done my best to edit this episode so that even through my emotions, you can still hear what I'm saying and understand what is being said. To all the men out there, the fathers who are listening, if you're new to having a daughter with or a child with a disorder, you are not alone. There are many, many of us out there. And as a macho, tough man, I know what it's like to carry that weight. And you're enough. You're doing it. And it's okay to show your emotions, to talk about what your mental health is like. Hell, even in the UFC, it's becoming a normal, commonplace thing. I don't remember who the fighter was, but several months ago, somebody fought and won, and he came out and told Dana White that, hey, you know, I fought this for my buddy, and I just got to say that this male stigma bullshit has got to end. I would much rather have my buddy come and cry on my shoulder than carry him on my shoulder and bury him in the ground. Apparently, he had just lost a friend to suicide who... As the stigma for all men goes, you can't share your damn emotions. Just hold them in. And it doesn't matter if you're not okay. I'm here to tell you that's wrong. The best thing that I have done is begun to write my emotions down for these podcast episodes. I tell Jessica all the time that I don't care if I only ever have one person listen. And it's me when I go back and listen after I've recorded it and tried to perfect it for everyone. Because it's simply the act of writing down this traumatizing time for me and man dealing with these emotions is healing and all men need this a real man doesn't hold on to his emotions and lash out at his wife and kids and take out his aggression on everything and everyone around him or or commit suicide because he wasn't allowed to show his emotions a real man is someone who can talk through what they're feeling, and come to grips with the fact that crying, come to grips with the fact that crying over over having just traded medications for your daughter that may kill her does not make you less, sorry, it does not make you less of a man, if anything, In my eyes, it makes you a true man 
someone who has learned to deal with these emotions, to stare his demons and his past in the face, is now strong enough that he can be the man his wife, his children deserve, and everyone around him that needs. And it is time to end this stigma. Man, can't share. It's bullshit. Sucks. Fucking hurts. And I can't. can't. Man. I can't not share anymore. And I can't not get the word out. If any of you out there feel like you don't have anyone. I don't know a single man who would rather carry his buddy on his shoulder and put him in the grave than have that buddy come and cry on his shoulder and talk through the shit hand life has dealt them. And I don't know you, most of you, the three of you who are probably listening, I probably do know. But if you don't have anyone else, reach out and I will listen. I will swallow my better instincts to try and fix everything through jokes. And I will simply listen and be there when you need me. Because that is what a real man does. He doesn't hide from his emotions. He doesn't hide his emotions from his friends or his loved ones. And damn it, he doesn't end his life. I'm sorry. Guys, this episode turned into something I wasn't planning on. But I need you to know, you're not alone. Those first seven months of my daughter's life, I contemplated suicide at least once a day. Usually multiple times. It got so bad that I had to ask my wife to take our guns from our house for the second time in our marriage. Because I was so worried that she would come home from work and I would have used one of those in the coward's way out. And damn it, did I think about it. And I came so close. And any of you listening who are struggling, I beg you, Find someone to talk to. If you can't talk to your wife or you don't have a wife, your husband, I don't, I don't care who it is. If you don't have someone to talk to, you fucking call me and I will listen <laughs> and I will be there for you in your desperate hour. I didn't have anyone <laughs> and it is a miracle that I am still here. And anyone listening to this, just know I will always answer your emails. I will always respond on social media. I will be there if you need me. And if it's not me, find someone you can talk to. And I guarantee you, 9 out of 10 out of your buddies won't judge you. In fact, you'll find out that as you share with them, they'll share with you. And you can heal with each other. And you can help each other. Stay for your kids, for your wife, for your parents, for your friends, for your family. You have something 
left to do on this earth. Do not ruin the opportunity to make this world a better place by giving in to those demons, by giving in to the stigma that men can't fucking talk about their emotions. Find somebody. Talk to them. Heal. Maybe a lot... Maybe you need to start writing. A lot of people say the gym for them is how they heal. And I love I love the gym. I go six days a week at least. I love lifting. I hate cardio, but I do it. Being able to throw around weights on leg day makes me feel like a god. But I've come to realize that it was just another coping mechanism for me. And I think that's ultimately why I stopped. Last summer, I was... Started to really get back into heavy lifting and exercise, and I thought, yep, this is going to cure me. This is going to fix all my problems. I don't need to podcast anymore. I don't need to write down my thoughts and feelings and and deal with my emotions. I'm a man, for hell's sakes. We don't do that. And it worked for a little while, and I was even seeing therapy. I was doing different things. I was trying to bring God back more into my life. I quit drinking. I was trying to better myself for my wife and my kids and the gym helped but it doesn't fix it for me what fixes it is right here when I write down my bullet points and my notes it it helps but I doesn't heal I I don't heal it doesn't heal me to simply write those down the talking is what is healing for me and everybody you've got to find your own damn thing I I get that I know that But I am a very firm believer that talking it out with whoever, over the phone, in person, pretending like you might actually have listeners out there, and so you talk in a podcast and have pretend in your mind you have an audience, is healing. Because I'm sharing the deepest, darkest demons and exposing who I truly am to the world. And that's why I do it in a podcast episode, because there's no judgment. (laughs) Anyways, I apologize again. Apparently, this has been really on my mind, guys. And I I needed to say this for myself. Um, I, I appreciate you listening. And I truly, truly appreciate however many listeners of you, how many of you are. Oh, my goodness. However many of you there are out there that actually listen to me, I, I appreciate it. And I hope, I simply hope that the trauma, the demons, the doubts, the fears, the confusion, even the hope that I have dealt with and lived with and suffered with, struggled, struggled so damn bad with over the last almost eight years, simply helps you realize you're not alone. And more importantly, that you are loved, and that you are on this world, on this earth, for a reason. Well... I think that's all I have to say. I want to thank you for listening to me, those whoever you are out there. I hope you can forgive me. It's okay to show emotions, but like I said, it's it's hard when I'm doing this, and there may be somebody who listens. This this episode is going to take a long time for me to edit. Um, The emotion is raw lately. I'm on about a four-day streak of just little things. The waterworks just start flowing. And it's because I think I'm, yeah, we'll leave it at that. Thanks for tuning in to episode number three of the Triple D podcast or Dads of Daughters with Disorders.